Hello and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. I'm Gemma Cray and I am here with three fantastic filmmakers who have their shorts in the Gays Film Festival. Now the Gays International Film Festival takes place each year in Dublin for the August Bank Holiday weekend. And then after I speak with these very talented filmmakers, I will actually be chatting with the festival programmer Roisin Garrity. Now, first up, I would like you guys to go around and introduce yourselves and tell me a little bit about your project as well as we go around. So I'll start with you, Maya. Hi, I'm Maya Darrington and I'm part of Still Films. And um, we made a short film called Free to Think as part of the Screen Ireland Short Shorts Initiative two years ago now. It was part of a round that was about icons. It's gone on to play at Galway and we're very happy that it's also gone to Palm Springs and LA. So, but now we're... Even more happy that it'll be in Dublin at Gays. <laughs> and do you get to go to Palm Springs? Unfortunately not. Oh. <laughs> I will be at Gays though. So. Excellent. <laughs> and tell me a little bit about the script um, or a little bit about the story. Yeah, so um, it's based around kind of ideas of individuality, how we kind of buy into individuality. I just noticed that there were various tropes that popped up again and again in the way that people kind of styled themselves. Like I've been at various parties where there were sort of Frida Kahlo alikes, as well as people everywhere sporting the um, the David Bowie lightning strike. And I just started to, to be kind of fascinated by this idea of sort of mass individuality, basically. And that's where this script came from. So it's about a, a woman who goes to a fancy dress party dressed as Frida Kahlo, and ends up finding that kind of everyone else is also dressed the same. So. <laughs> and it's it's nice that it has a great escalation where it, you know, it goes to one point, becomes more and more ridiculous, becomes more and more ridiculous. And, and the, that's where a lot of the humour is. So it really, really works as well. And you can see a lot of people in it. Um, that I know, and me, because I'm terrible <laughs> at doing that. I'd be like, I'm the most individual person and I will do all the same things that everyone yeah. else does. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely, there were elements of myself in that film, I must confess. And uh, Katie McNeese? Uh, yeah, I'm writer, director and producer of In Orbit. Um, it's my first film and I finished it like by the skin of my teeth to get into Galway, where I had my premiere a couple of weeks ago and going to Gaze now as well. So like, I've only submitted to two festivals, so they're the only two that I really wanted to submit to, if that makes any sense. So literally, like, I'm still gathering myself. That's why my voice is going. I'm so tired. Um, it's just been a mad few months, you know, like, I think this is the first script I ever wrote where I was like, okay, I want to direct it. And it was the first time I ever wrote it thinking, okay, this is something I'm going to write for me and not for like a competition or, you know, for a specific director or whatever. So like writing something about being gay was just the most obvious and maybe cliche thing that I could do, you know. So I kind of, I had this experience, like I've watched every gay film that I could even get my hands on. And people kind of touch on the idea of not feeling seen. <clears throat> but I never I never found a film that I thought really communicated, like, what does it feel like, though? So I think like that's why In Orbit is so... Maybe it's more like a poetic film than like kind of a narrative film because it's it's about putting yourself in someone else's head. So like literally like everything is about visibility, about feeling seen, about being seen and seeing other people. And that's why my um, my character's an optician. She literally doesn't see herself properly or see the world properly and she doesn't see herself as having a place in it. But the whole film is about her coming around to the idea that she is seen and that she can see herself for who she is and that's fine. And it's, I think weirdly like it's like the simplest thing I could think of I ended up writing such a complicated script and like turning it into such a massive project for my first film I mean, it's 17 minutes long 
Um, I was going to say as well, you yeah. say that it's a very simple script, but I was, it, it has the beginning of Up where you have a whole lifetime in it as yeah. well. You're, like, it's not that simple. It's like a whole woman's relationship and her understanding of herself and mm. that, that kind of um, hindsight element as well really works. And then on top of that, it's so visual mm-hmm. and very uh, ambitious as well with the, the sci-fi element, which works really well. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's it was this thing where I wanted it to be a really simple script. It's like I'll just shoot it in my apartment, it'll be grand. And then I ended up <laughs> in my office at work, um, in my apartment in a park on a bridge. I ended up going to Specsavers, a nursing home. Do you know this this thing grew arms and legs and teeth and everything else you can think of. But I'm glad it happened that way. You know, I think I I didn't intend on making such a a massive attempt at a first film, and I'm wrecked as I said. But I'm kind of I'm glad I did. I think the story deserved it and it was weird like a Galway had people approaching me like in tears after the screening and two of the volunteers left crying so I, I felt bad for a mini second and then I thought yes like my job here is done you know <laughs> yeah like I'm really excited I can't wait to go to gaze though I kind of I said to I said to Rashi and I met her at Galway that like obviously I wanted to premiere at Galway but gaze has been like such an important part of like me moving to Dublin even and grounding myself here and and seeing people like me in cinema which I don't see an awful lot of the time and I think that it kind of ties into the whole premise of the film as well in a huge way can you tell me a little bit about um, the funding because it's a very big concept it's a huge concept now kind of part of the reason that I directed it like I ended up directing by accident I had no notion of being a director um, like I've got a master's degree in film studies but like it, it's theoretical film so I can tell you everything about the feminist implications of body horror in the 1960s or something dramatic like that but I like I've never picked up a camera before like my full-time job is a producer I'm for a multinational company, but I don't do hands-on filmmaking. I literally like made this up as I went along. Um, it's self-funded. Um, I had a little Indiegogo campaign. I got like fifteen hundred euro, and I think maybe like fourteen hundred of that was my grandmother. I assume, oh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, which is just doty. It's great. Um, but yeah, no, I funded it myself. I took out a loan for for ten grand and ended up topping it up every month, and then the budget actually skyrocketed eventually to 22 and a half grand and I've done all that myself so I think this was one of those things that it started off as like I just want to prove that I can do this and then the whole thing became so emotional and the actors were so involved and Yaro was so involved and the people who helped me did it because the story did something for them that they didn't expect I don't think you know even getting actors like Arnie Nivari or like Alwyn Ferrer I mean oh my god Alwyn is in the film she's only in it for a few seconds now but I'm just I'm so smug over it it's fantastic and it's because she liked the story you know and I think I didn't intend to make an expensive film but it kind of got to a point where I needed to give it what it needed if that makes any sense like I ended up doing like an awful lot of the visual effects myself and I haven't a clue. I opened up After Effects and I was like, oh my God, all the buttons, like what do they do? And I ended up like every time I wanted to do another mask or I wanted to swap out a sky or do a hologram, I would just Google it. And then like three in every five links tell you to do it wrong and I'd have to delete it and go again and again and again. And I would spend 18 hours straight for, I think it was six weeks trying to finish everything myself. I'm, wow. So that's why I'm so tired, but I think yeah. it's completely <laughs> worth it. Like I'm proud of it. Thank you. Uh, it's a tiny boy so, saint. Yeah, I'm Tom. My film's <laughs> name is Boy Saint. It's uh, inspired by a poem by the same name by a guy called Peter LeBurge. The poem essentially is about a love cut short before it really had a chance to flourish. So while my film, the contents of my film has a sort of totally different story, it has a sort of similar theme running through it. And it's essentially a very simple film about two teenage boys who are falling in love, but who are too afraid to really show it. Because it's happening in the backdrop of a gang of teenage boys where it's very clear that uh, that would be unacceptable. So... 
it's about the sort of the pressure and fear and shame put on these boys in the face of this and the fact that the, lo- the love never really got a chance to take off. It's very, very powerful. You you watch it and the the, the, the very young actors, the, the performances are so natural and, and true. It's sort of hard to work as to watch as well in some ways because I do think like you do get the sense where they're, they're you know, these, these young boys, they seem very kind of like in that hyper macho world mm. where it's almost like this fake toxic masculinity that is outward and mm. where you can't express yourself and, and that's always there and it just it's amazing how you capture that um, and again again there's such young actors what did you do to cast them and work with them in this yeah well so i mean this, this, so there was some language in the in the poetry that really brought me back to my own memories of being a teenage boy and for the first time i really had uh, a realization about what it might be like to grow up gay in that situation i, I imagine myself the gang of lads where I grew up in, where the word gay is the most common insult thrown around all the time. And imagine the fear and shame of living through that. So that was the sort of inspiration behind it. So when, when casting the boys, obviously all the scenes that happen between the, the two boys have to be moments of intimacy that happen in plain sight because they can't give anything away. So it was a case of trying to write scenes where they could get physically close, but in sort of plausible situations that wouldn't raise suspicion. But teenage boys are getting close all the time physically. It's just never romantic. They're wrestling or there's a scene where he's got something in his eye and his friend has to very sort of tenderly take it out of his eye or they're getting in a jumper together and these kinds of things. So with the main two boys, the things I was looking for was subtlety. There's no dialogue in this film. So they need to be able to tell me, give me a huge amount without any lines. So I, when I went casting those boys, I ran scenes where I, um, I had them lie, tell lies. And I told them that I wanted the other boys to uh, not could tell that they were lying but for me to be able to see it in their eyes and so subtlety was the main thing with the leading guys with the other boys who are this sort of gang of lads who are a constant reminder of masculinity i cast so i had so many auditions with different guys and i wasn't really getting it going through drama groups or anything like that so i ended up going so to they're a, not the kind of classic well i couldn't see the macho I, dudes as well, well just because i wasn't I was seeing them one by with. one you see that was the mistake i yeah. made initially was i was casting them one-on-one so it was wasn't easy to get a dynamic so we started doing group um group castings and then we got these guys from a boxing club who just exuded this masculinity and and physicality as well and i got three of them who were all mates already which meant i was actually able to establish a sort of natural clique on screen that was actually genuinely intimidating for the other two boys so there was this this constant duality between filmmaker you'd nearly be intimidated as well (laughs) it was funny when when i met them um, i thought it was their you know, I was, you know, expecting a certain level of respect since I was a director, but forget that. And I went, met, talked to them and I said, um, I, you know, have you ever been on, been in a film before or anything? Assuming that they had never done, they were like 14, 15 years old. And the guy goes, uh, yeah, I was in a thing with uh, Shea Meadows there last year. <laughs> I was like, what? Like one of my favorite directors. Suddenly the dynamic changed and I was like the fanboy going, what was it like? Guys? What was he? How was that? Because they were in the, they were the two boys in the Virtues the Channel 4 drama that just came out. But they had shot that before I shot Boy Sing, which was, you know, last year. Um, so they were brilliant. That gang of lads were brilliant. And I only had to give them very simple directions to get the kinds of things I, I wanted out of them. There's a, a kind of a, f- a flow to it as well, where it works within the, the, the poetry. It works very well. Was that something that you had scripted out scene by scene and had it completely clear beforehand with storyboards and things or was that something that you know you were a bit looser with and found in the edit um i'd written every scene but there were some scenes that hadn't i mean if you see the film you'll know there's some scenes that have natural elements of unpredictability like messing with fireworks or swimming and those kinds of things were definitely supposed to be more impressionistic but the other scenes between the boys 
were all written out. I just knew that if I got one or two really strong actors and gave them simple direction, the other things would happen naturally. Like a pull-up co- competition, I could tell by casting the kid that was least going to want to do the pull-ups. And I, could, I knew the kid who was going to most want to do it and show off. So it was a case of letting them naturally do that kind of thing. And then with other scenes, when the, the two boys are together, you know, they were, we had shoot days without all the other rest of the boys when the two boys could just be alone. Um, and those were times I could work with them in a much more controlled environment. But yeah, everyone got it. And um, I mean, they were, I think they didn't know what they were going to see when it was all cut together. But um, yeah, it worked out. And I think as well, if you're the, the, the thing that it does so well is the, the social situations where you're in a social situation, it's not very easy to, to pick up on the energy. But when you're watching that, because we're not kind of hearing if there is like the dialogue that they are maybe are talking, it's it's the poem underneath. It's very funny how much it, it kind of hits you in the face as well, like the different energies that they exude, the the kind of like that kind of negativity, the closeness of the two boys. So it was a really good moment to to catch. Um, and just wondering, your own background is in um, advertising? Yeah, I guess commercials, directing and making videos and that kind of thing. So yeah, I do that. I, I, I'm with a company who represents me for ads and that kind of thing, which just happened on the back of Boy Saint coming out. Yeah, I didn't didn't go to film school, but I was always really into filmmaking from a young age. I started off doing uh, skateboard videos, shooting on like a DV tape when I was and, you know, cutting on Final Cut Express when I was like 15 years old and doing the typical things that lads do, like making jackass videos and all that kind of stuff. So that's how I learned to get into that. And then yeah, I didn't end up studying it in college, but um, was always shooting stuff the whole time I was in college, making videos for pocket money and that kind of stuff. So it was kind of inevitable that I'd end up back in it. Yeah, of course. And with advertising as well, it's you have to tell the story in a very, very, very short space of time. Mm-hmm. What skills do you think are, you know, someone working mm-hmm. in that field generally will bring to filmmaking? Well, the things that with this film that I think was appealing, I got it got some attention with some industry sort of showcase things. So that meant I get, got to get some meetings with people. And the feedback I was getting with that was the parallels are, you know, nice shot making, being able to get some emotion and storytelling in a relatively short amount of time. And often without the use of dialogue, like in lots of these kinds of ads. So that's definitely a crossover that I think between this film and that kind of work. Right. Um, I'm just going to go back to you again. So your background is actually in as a producer, but you've also done. Um, well, I love Pajama Girls. That was one of my favorite kind of films. I'm from Finland, so I would know that world quite well. And I, I just think it was this beautiful uh, depiction of natural life and especially at times when certain people can be demonized in media uh, what differences do you find in the drama world and the documentary world as a director yeah so it is massively different and one of the main things I suppose is that you have a huge huge crew when you are working in drama and I have to say I found that really really challenging so when I was directing Pajama Girls It was me working closely with the girls. It was me and my colleague, Sinead, just us on the streets, often quite terrified. Um, And and yeah, just forming kind of close connections and allowing kind of real emotions to flow. So trying to, yeah, I found it really hard to segment off scene by scene the emotions that I wanted to get from the actors Frida Think was the first time that I that I worked with actors and having to do that with a load of a huge crew around you is even more difficult and I'm I'm just so glad to have had the opportunity to do that because it kind of it really changes 
the way that you write and changes the way that you approach a project. So, yeah, I definitely wanted to begin with something really short in order to explore that world. It's been it's been a good kind of taster to get into that. And, and yeah, my next aim is to, to script something longer, to kind of be... I, I wanted a really sort of enclosed environment for Frida, which is in a way the opposite of the Pajama Girls experience. So every shot is kind of very formal, like, like a portrait. And I wanted this kind of enclosed, yeah, sort of shut in interior environment. But I would also now like to kind of to extend that and, and um, go into something which more combines the two. Yeah. So that's where I'm looking with my writing kind of going forward. And actually, I'm drawn again to, to I find myself drawn to writing about teenage girls. And I think that's all of all of us look back to formative experiences and somehow want to kind of mm. create that sort of, I don't know, those coming of age moments. And it's definitely the right time for this I think maybe five years ago there just wasn't as much of an audience to receive stories about teenage girls obviously Pajama Girls was a cultural phenomenon and just wonderful like a wonderful film but I I also mean as a a narrative kind of coming of age story they just weren't as common yeah Um, and I do think like now things like Dairy Girls uh, Metal Heart was out recently like there just seems to be a big audiences are there first now and then. Well, I think there's an yeah. appreciation that, that there actually is a story there. I mean, that's what always frustrated me so much, that it was just, you know, anything that, that you wrote about your own experiences was somehow written off as being irrelevant. A domestic. Domestic. If it's a woman's story. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, yeah, I, I sort of subtly in Pajama Girls managed to cut out all men. <laughs> it's just it ended up being a film with not a single man in, apart from the, the, the were young boys in it. But I kind of thought, well, I watch films like this all the time where I just see men wall to wall and I want to kind of reflect a world that means, that's more relevant to me and kind of reflects my own life more. And um, yeah, but what intrigues me is the response to Pajama Girls. I was completely shocked that some people, um, I don't know, found the girls so completely that people found the girls shocking, whereas I was kind of focusing on Oh, I on know their... them. I know them yeah. well. I grew up with them. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, was, yeah. Well, people I were thought it was laughing. a very warm portrait of them. You know, normally, again, girls like that tend to be vilified in the press and seen as like inherently negative. And I thought, you know, it's warm. They're very cheeky. Like, Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you thought that because that yeah. was definitely where it was coming from, that I was kind of, I mean, there were moments when, of course, I sort of questioned their choices. And, but, but, essentially I could really identify and empathize with them so some of the feedback that I got just sort of took me by surprise which perhaps shows a sort of naivety on my part but um, even people I don't know people see I I was concerned to hear people being so surprised by the way that they lived because I thought my god get out there and and walk around the city a bit then and you know and you'll find that this is this is real life. Yeah. And again, there's there's a lot to say about, um, well, the comedic moments in, uh, like there is similarities in it where it's the female driven narrative. There's the comedic beats. Like it's not easy, especially in short film to, to get comedy right and to, to match all those beats. And you definitely, A, mastered it with, um, but with both. So you have very kind of uh, hilarious moments in both and very kind of true moments in both. Do you have any kind of tricks? 
basically is what I'm asking. How do you find that or is it just something you do automatically? Well, thank you for yeah. thinking that I do that. That's that's nice to nice to hear. Um but yeah, I I don't I don't consciously know what that thing is other than I'm naturally a kind of long-winded and verbose person, but when but I respond I think positively to feedback, so I'm prepared to kind of hack anything, hack a script back or, you know, in an edit kind of hack out huge sections to kind of to get to to get a flow working I suppose I'm I am kind of interested in the shape of an edit or the shape of a script and I find when I'm in the edit that I kind of almost picture it as a visual shape and so I want there to be like to come quickly out of some scenes and yeah I don't, I can't really express how that works, but somehow I'm I'm seeing it in kind of shape form as if there's in the narratives there are certain kind of tent poles and you need to to edit around those. Um, and actually, I, I want to open it up and and say something a little bit more uh, general now, and it's more to do with the themes of your work. And I'm just wondering if everybody could maybe just have a just say a little bit of a few a couple of words about why you made this film and why you made this film now. We'll start with Tom. Sure. Yeah. We'll go back around. Well, I guess, I mean, the, the literal reason why I made this film now was because, well, there's this film program called Motion Poems. So this poem came to me, essentially, and it was really it was my response to this poem. So a lot of the credit for the theme of it goes to the poet who wrote it. And I guess, as I said, my personal response to it was taking some of the themes and transposing it into my memory of, a, of being a teenage boy. And also sort of celebrating that time as well, because you know, teenagers and the way they carry on, like all the kind of stuff that would be just classified as messing that these boys are doing are actually really important formative things. So that's why I wanted to elevate that with this almost holy status by shooting it with lots of natural light, shooting it, you know, in this sort of shimmering sort of larger than life way. Um, And also introducing choral music as a way of elevating that because you know, the, the, the piece of music, Thomas Tallis, uh, I forget what the name of the piece is, but that was the composer. He's like a 15th century composer. Back when the only music funded then was funded by the church and it had one sole purpose, which was to put the feeling of God into people. So if you take music that is designed to move people powerfully with whatever prayer or thought or guilty feeling they're having when they're sitting praying, um, and you layer that over something that is generally considered just messing and meaningless, you suddenly elevate this kind of stuff to a really sort of larger status. And it also makes these very intimate moments feel really, really special, which they are, which is how they feel at the time, but they're sort of forgettable moments on the face of it. Yeah, that was my main sort of drive on, on making the film. It's finding the emotional truth. And it's, it is, that's, that's it. And as filmmakers, that's something all of you guys do is, is kind of, you know, there's an element of fantastic and then there's an element of the realness and then it's, you know, finding the both to get the, the point of view across of the main character. So it definitely works really well. Before we actually continue on themes and why you're making this now, um, I actually wanted to note as well that your film really used music so well to elevate the emotional arc of it. Yeah. And I was just wondering, before we get into the, the theme one, if you could yeah. just say a little bit about that, because I find that very interesting. Well, yeah, I think um, <clears throat> my composer, Emer Kinsla, strangely, I've never met her, but she's um, she's from Dublin. She's based in Los Angeles. And I interviewed her for IFDN years ago when I was working there in content. And it was strange because I I made the decision um, before I directed the film, because I literally had no idea what I was doing, to do a festival run first, but just with the script. 
and just enter competitions and get good feedback and get testimonials and we picked up a few awards and I did like a live pitch in London I got an award in Amsterdam and it's been all over the US and everything so the story was really well travelled but Emer picked up on this from Twitter and she messaged me and said listen I want to score your film it sounds like something I'm interested in can I can I read it and I said yeah yeah fine and we ended up becoming friends we ended up Skyping all the time and like for the 4th of July I had a can of Guinness and she had a, a Budweiser Aww. you know and we just like day drinking well I was I was night drinking she was day drinking to be fair um, and we ended up just kind of striking up this friendship because again like we bonded over the story and I, I did about I think six or seven workshops with her before I even shot the film and she had a first version of the score ready to go Wow. Where um like I did out a timeline of the film and I had like above the line is positive feeling and below the line is negative because in a lot of ways I think that when you've got a positive feeling about, you know, someone overcoming something in relation to their sexuality, a lot of the time it's quite painful because you have to admit that like, okay, I've been either living in secret for so long or I haven't been fulfilled or okay, I'm happy now, but I have to admit that I, I lost 40 years of my life being frightened. So there's this kind of conflict where as, as good as it can be, there's always a tinge there's always a pain there, you know? Yeah. I think that's something that I worked on really hard with Emer, where it's, you know, it's 20% happy and it's 80% painful. And so I've got all these weird little diagrams that I did with my Sharpies and then put that into a Photoshop document, sent it off to her. And she had this literal, it was like an architecture map, like the emotional map of the film was done before we shot it. Um, and that's something that I think worked really well because Emer also, she sang in the film as well. So whenever, um, like it, the whole thing is string based, but what I wanted to do was to have like a disembodied voice that followed my character Mora from the point of being lonely to finding love to not thinking she was able for it and then making the decision or whatever. So you notice Emer's voice comes in and out to kind of perpetuate this idea of like this person is here, this person is frightened, this person feels like she doesn't have a body or a mind or a life of her own. And it was strange because it was all, you know, it was it was all disembodied if that makes any sense it kind of reminds me a lot actually of, of your film Thomas in the sense that it's, it's more poetic than hmm. literal like there's a lot of talking in my film because it's based on like an, an interview talking over the past you know but at the same time it relies on like, it's kind of like that like intimacy hmm. that's you know felt but not seen and mm -hmm. I think In Orbit has an awful lot of that to it as well um, so Emer, in fairness to her, like she, she did a huge amount of work for like whatever budget I could afford to give her you know um, she wanted to make it to gays actually and she couldn't at the last minute she had her flights oh. booked and she had to cancel them I was gutted but uh, yeah she did incredible work I mean I've the score as well as went to Spotify and iTunes the same day we had our premiere in Galway and I think in fairness to Emer like the, the music for In Orbit has become just like a thing in and of itself um, that I think she should be really proud of again I think the reason that it relies so much on music is that you 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 have to feel it you you can't explain it. It's again, it's very like your what you're saying, Tom, about the the angelic music in your mm. film, which is lovely, by the way. Is that you you have to experience music. You can't you know, you can't write a letter to someone who's never listened to a song and explain what the experience is. Likewise, you can't explain what it's like to feel like you're living in a world you don't belong in because you're gay or because you're a woman or because you're a little bit older or because you know, your parents didn't love you or, you know, like whatever, whatever the loss is, I think music very much like fills the gap. It does. And it really gets, uh, hits home the, her incongruence. Yep. Mm. There's one thing I credit, I forgot to give on music, which I want to make, make sure I do, which is the, the original score was Thomas Tallis, but a, a fantastic composer called Mackenzie Stubbert, who's based in LA, uh, took the music. I, I was in touch with him and 
I, I referenced the song and he couldn't believe it because he grew up in this really religious uh, upbringing, always playing church music. So it was the first person ever to reference Talis to him. But he did an amazing composition. So the, the original stuff was uh, some of the bits you hear, but he put together a whole composition and reworked all of it for the film. So I just need to give him a shout out for that as well. So now, why now? And um, and just tell me a little bit, kind of, you did actually mention about your themes, but what was it about this film that you felt now you wanted, really wanted to make it? There are a few different things. I think the age I'm at had a lot to do with it. Like, I'm 28 now, and you think that, like, the generation that I'm in, you think, like, oh, sure, it's easy being gay, sure, it's fashionable. Do you know what I mean? Everyone wants to be gay now, it's fun, you know? And I, that's downright ridiculous. Um, It's, you know, it's a perception that I've gotten from a lot of, we'll say, like, well-meaning aunts and uncles or like older people I work with or whatever they think oh look the vote passed it's fine it's like no you don't you have no idea what this experience has been and I am like hugely appreciative of the fact that people voted for gay marriage and whatever but it is so easy to take a box and say yeah it is incredibly hard to communicate what the experience is and even still like just to put it in context and I think when I say this to people it, the penny kind of drops a bit like I've got a twin sister who's been in a long-term relationship, she's happy, and every time we're home, Nana is saying to her, like, oh, and you're getting married and whatever, and I'm, like, delighted that I'm not getting asked any of these questions. But <laughs> when are you having babies? Do I, yeah, I was like, uh, <laughs> yeah. tricky, tricky, I don't know. <laughs> but, like, the thing is, when I'm in work and people are having conversations about getting married and having babies and buying houses together, like, I've never been to a gay wedding. Like, I don't know anyone who's gay who's had a child. I don't know anyone above the age of like 40 who's been in a long-term relationship I've never seen two old women holding hands together walking in the park do you know what I mean it's all this basic stuff that tells you it's possible and you can do it and I think I was really struggling with the fact that I was I'm still upset about a lot of this stuff and I'm still trying to grow into myself as an adult even feeling like I'm missing a history and I'm missing reference points that everyone else has and I'm just so angry and that it's so unfair and I think even if you look at mainstream yeah. cinema like where where are those films like it's like the small little indie films here and there mm-hmm. you'll get you know a good heartfelt film like even for a long time obviously gaze is the best thing <laughs> bringing like all the best films there but it's you know like it just if it's in the mainstream why isn't it in the mainstream yeah you like, know why yeah. isn't one in ten films that come out about just happen one of the characters one of the main protagonists just happens to be gay like that's that is representation that is it and it's it's across everything as well it is like i mean historically there i mean and these are fantastic and i'm so grateful for them but like a lot of like lgbt films are based around conflict and illness and and hardship and it's like god it's so important to tell those stories but i wanted to tell a story about someone who is literally just trying to cope with understanding who they are. And the film, the word gay is never mentioned in my film. Not once. Um, because it's not about being gay. It's about being a person who feels they're entitled to love and who can see themselves for who they are and the world for what it is. You know, like Dublin is as much a character in my film as Maura or as Amy, no matter what age they are. I mean, Maura is 40 in my film. She's also 80. It doesn't really make a difference if she's gay or straight. Like, it really doesn't. Um, And like, I think the world being a character is really important because like my little brothers were born when I was 24 so I had like free reign of the house for 24 years and all of a sudden I've got these two new kids in my life and it was so weird because it was like becoming a parent um and feeling attached to them and they were like three and a half pounds each when they were born they were like little potatoes with arms and legs and I walked into the hospital and I saw them and I just I couldn't speak like for a few minutes I had this rush of like oh my god I just want to keep you safe and I want you to be happy and I want the world to be kind to you. And I had to grasp 
and struggle with the idea that I know that it hasn't been kind to me. Yeah. And so I had this idea of like me trying to grow into myself as an adult and then realizing like, oh God, we need to treat each other properly because that the way that we treat each other now really defines how people who are teenagers and I mean the boys are four now I mean I want them to look after each other and to love each other and to be loved no matter where they go and I can't guarantee that I've got no control over it and I think that was a huge like turning point for me like as a writer and as a person even in like my own relationships be it you know romantic or work or whatever it is this huge need to treat each other properly um, and to invest in how I see the world because I can be very cynical about it but again the onus is kind of on us to change our perspective literally and physically and every other way you know and that's I think how In Orbit ended up being so much about sight and perception um, and about focusing on how your sense of self projects itself in the world and then it's like the butterfly effect I mean it affects everyone and everything around you and I think like we've got a huge onus on ourselves to be positive and to show your kindness and I always say oh god it sounds so Oprah you know what I mean but it does it really oh god, does now more than ever though yeah like, look, know, look what's does. happening look look yeah. who's now leading the UK like look at the prime minister that's insane we do need to like you're it is about kind of healing and about positivity mm-hmm. and like that kind of making space for everybody yeah and making every making sure everybody is heard it so, is. And yeah. it's the sense of urgency to understand each other as well, which I think is why I'm also quite angry about the, the lack of visibility on trans rights and stuff. Yeah. Like, I, it didn't occur to me to go to a protest because I'm not trans myself. And that's that's selfish. You know, it really is. And I think we need to start, like, urgently trying to understand each other when we don't stand to gain anything from it as well. And which is why I think, like, it's why gays is great. But I don't know how many straight people go to gaze. I mean, I said it to a 65-year-old man at work, like, uh, he's like, oh, is your film going to be in a festival? You know, just making conversation in the kitchen. And I went, yeah, I'm going to gaze. And I think he presumed I meant G-A-Y-S and he got the fright of his life and he ran <laughs> off. You know, but I'd, I'd love for him to come. You know, it'd be yeah. good. It'd be great. I think we need to start, you know, it shouldn't matter what sexuality you are. You need to, we need to start understanding each other properly. Perfect. Yeah. And? I just wanted to make it, say something about your film, actually, Katie, that I watched it with my mum, who is in her 70s, and it just made, I, I saw how kind of captivated she was to see someone of the same generation of her, as her on screen. And then that made me think about the fact that we don't very often hear older women talking about emotions or sort of, you know, insights into themselves. That, to me, feels really relevant as well. And I know that there is more female representation out there now, but actually I don't feel we should be kind of stopping there and feeling that um, the job is done and that that's kind of yesterday's commissioning news. Still, we we just don't see um, female stories and, fe- and hear female voices as much as we should in terms of um, gender balance. And yeah, so I suppose um, with my films, that's what... I'm not even particularly consciously trying to redress, but that's what I'm interested in hearing. So that's naturally kind of, that's what I write about and what I make. Um, And I'm interested in kind of female forms of expression. So I suppose, yeah, the theme of clothes keeps recurring as a sort of, as a metaphor and also as an actual kind of means of expression. So in the case of Frida, I mean, you know, it's a lighthearted film, but at the same time, I suppose it's about issues with identity and a sort of sense of disconnect between ourselves and consumer society, kind of the idea of like of buying self-expression. So to me, that that becomes more and more relevant all the time. I suppose I, I 
was a teenager in a generation where we kind of had to scrabble around to try to find ways of expressing difference. And um, yeah, we had kind of limited means of doing so. But we did it through clothes and often through kind of jumble sale clothes and through music from kind of obscure local sources. But it's confusing for me now because all of that has been kind of realigned. So I suppose that there are just so many things that people can buy now that they can kind of dress themselves with and identify themselves um, via that that landscape has completely changed. And yeah, and I think there's something kind of interesting in that transition. It is, again, in this era of social media, it's about constructing an identity that's not necessarily who you are, but it's, you know, your best self and this is who you want to be. And it's, it's you know, this this lady is there and it's really challenged for her. So that does make a lot of sense. And it is like it is quite timely and funny as well. And actually, I'm, I meant to say this, there was a really kind of gorgeous shot where she was framed perfectly within the door and it, and it looked like one of the actual paintings of it. But it was very striking. Yeah, there was a lot of trouble trying to get her into that door. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I kind of, yeah, I wanted very much to um, to both give the shapes of portraits and also, I suppose, of kind of a selfie phone shot. Yeah. So, yeah, the way that we kind of box, our, to, to look at the ways we kind of box ourselves off. Interesting. Yeah. As a visual metaphor, it really works. Um, but I was just wondering if we could just have a chat about you either have an idea or you come across a script. What would be your next stage generally? What, what what would be what you would do? Would you have a chat with the DOP? Would you go and break it down and analyze all the characters? I can't claim to have a process yet. That was my debut film. So um, what would I do? I mean, the story is the most important thing. So I would just need to establish whether that's something that I can really get across scene by scene um, and really... I think empathy is probably the most important thing when it comes to understanding characters and writing characters. Um, I think I could say the thing I look for most in a, in a script is this, but it's really the things that move me most in films is any moment where I suddenly have a new perspective on something that I thought I had already had an understanding of. So whether it's a character experience of a typical type that you'd already written off or something like that, that, that those are the kinds of things that move me most when um, it comes to films. Excellent. Um... Yeah, look, I've, I think with my own scripts, like I've written a few shorts now at this stage, um, like in Orbit, obviously is the only one I've directed, but I tend to, I tend to break apart everything that I have and then rewrite it, but with, without looking at the action or the dialogue. So I would do kind of like a beat sheet where I do nothing but colours. So I would do a pass of the film, go yeah. green, red, green, red, blue, yeah, what, like whatever it is. So like in an Orbit, I've got, there's a colour for every character. And there's like the interview scene, which is based in 2059, is blue. But then everything that happens in 2019 is orange. It's actually based on um, the memory sequence from V for Vendetta, which is Valerie's letter, to give a totally different feel to the two worlds. And then from there, I would drill into those sections of the script and see how I could make that, um, you know, subtly kind of inject even more things to kind of reinforce that colour system, if that makes sense. So like the older Mora is a very light grey colour. Um, younger Maura is a very dark grey colour and it's about her progression from one to the other as the film goes on um, like Amy who's her love interest in the film is always green it's a sign of life and growth and nurture and her being a natural lovely thing that she should you know she should feel nurtured by um, also conveniently Specsavers has a green logo and they meet in Specsavers so I was handy I was delighted with that um, you know when they fight 
um, in in the in the film, um, all the props are red. You know, there's different things like that that I think subconsciously are going to reinforce what you're trying to say without you having to deliberately be so obvious about it. And I think that really weakens a film when you have to over explain things. So you have to explain something through dialogue. Like, I am feeling sad because I'm gay. You know, like no yeah. one wants to no one wants to do that. Um, and then also I'd lyrically look at how the characters talk. So I would do a pass of the script where I just write for one character and nobody else and pretend that that character is the main person. And then leave it for a few days. And That's a very good idea as yeah. well because it's sometimes you can kind of get caught up into the diction of maybe one person when it does make a big difference. No, it completely does. Yeah. I mean, even like there's the interviewer in my film doesn't even have a name. But I had to do a couple of passes where I looked at nothing but his reactions and his dialogue. And it was actually very easy to, to work with Michael David then, um, who played him because I knew exactly what I wanted. Like when, when Emer first read the script, she asked me if the interviewer was an android or a person. And I just, I thought it was hysterical. But I was like, actually, yeah, he does talk like that because I wanted him to be like that. Whereas then when Michael David did his, um, when he sent me a self-tape, he had such an emotional play and such a rigid kind of robotic character I think that's what I liked about him is that he's almost contradicting the character in a way and he you know he ended up bringing something out of it that I was subtly trying to do myself and I didn't even realize I was trying to do um and then the last thing I do I think is just read through it and go like do I believe you or not because there's a difference between what someone says and what they actually mean and I think that if you if you put the effort into painting the bits um that are there they're not to do a dialogue or action um it it's good it should be completely obvious what the what the contradictions are and i think any like i like really complicated people anyway like in in real life and in film and all the rest but i think that the contradictions should be obvious when you're reading and writing a script like there should be no like i, I love that when you do a reading or whatever the actors all have different ideas and that's great but i think there should be kind of a depth to the character that's obvious on the page because if it's not on the page it's not going to be there on screen either that one thing definitely your scripts do well is have like a tough protagonist, tough female protagonist, like we're ch- like a challenging person and mm. um, that isn't maybe necessarily the kind of sweetness and light that you would expect. And I, I do think that adds for a really good script. Maya? Yeah, actually just following on from what you were saying that I'm, I'm really interested in character, in main characters who are somewhat unlikable. It- you know, who who are not necessarily kind of positive heroes. It calls for kind of two layers of presentation. But um, yeah, so Frida Think was my first drama too. Um, yeah, I wrote it and obviously went through the application process with Screen Island, which involved a lot of kind of development of ideas at that stage. But um, yeah, I suppose I'd storyboarded it out. And then I spent a lot of time with my director of photography, who was Kate McCullough. And she obviously is the famous fantastic. Kate. Of yeah, course. She yeah. is, was just amazing and also had kind of input to give to that. And we spent a lot of time in the actual space that we were going to film in because we knew these two rooms, these kind of fairly small two rooms we were going to be um, negotiating with. And um, and that literally kind of gave us something to to bounce off as well. But yeah, so it's strange. I, I have done quite a lot of work giving um, feedback to scripts and that... But is, is it hard when it's yours? Because I, yeah. again, I, I've, I can look at... You, once you're objectively looking at something, it's such a different brain function. If you're looking at something that you're not in any way attached to, it's the first time you've seen it, you go, yeah, yeah, no, not working. This needs to be stronger. But if it's your work and it's from your brain, it, it's almost kind of, I don't know, like too much of a solid thing. And it takes a while before you can see it in that 
that distance. Yeah, I think you've just summed it up really well. You get a sort of snow blindness within your own work. So yeah, uh, you know, I can easily kind of hack through someone else's script and give pretty clear feedback. But yeah, then when it comes to my own, yeah, it's almost like I, I just can't even see what's there. And I suppose, yeah, the difficult thing is seeing what communicates and doesn't communicate to others, because obviously, you know, deeply what the thing is you're trying to say, but it's learning how to kind of how to cut through all that and, and find the way to, to properly communicate those things to other people is is a whole other matter. Completely. So it's an, an ongoing challenge. Does watching it with an audience change your work? Or do you see it be perceived in different ways? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, I personally am always in a kind of living hell when anyone is watching something that I'm involved with in any in any way. So um, as much as I can kind of focus on what's going on in the room, it's always amazing to see the completely unexpected responses almost, um, you know, where, yeah, you can just tell that people are channeling it in a, in a very different way. And obviously, than the way you might have intended but also um it is very gratifying when you know the laughter hits at the right moment or the looks of empathy kick in where you wanted them to be so um yeah it actually makes you I think going through that process makes you change your relationship with the film as well which is good it's part of a kind of process of of disconnecting in a positive way yeah, I mean, I've only watched my film with an audience once and I like it was my first screening. I was so nervous. Um, like Sarah Kinlan, who plays Amy, had her hand on my shoulder because you need to stop right, right, <laughs> right, right before I came on. And it was like, it was cool. It was it was strange because I think like, I don't know if, if you guys can relate to this, but like my film relies so heavily on atmosphere that I've watched it so many times and I've spent so many hours like working on the visual effects and stuff that it's not that I forget about the atmosphere, but it does lose itself on you a little bit. So to see it on a big screen, to hear Emer score on the big speakers is like, oh, okay, I can experience this again for myself. And feeling the change in atmosphere as it went from one scene to the next was, was like you said, gratifying is the right word. Um, and then afterwards to get feedback from people um, about the film was amazing because I think when you get into something and it goes on for so long, you kind of forget you're making it for people to watch it as well and I also like I people pointed this out to me in Galway a couple of the actors did that when I was being introduced to people after as the writer and director people had this puzzled look on their face like really <laughs> I think it's because I look so much younger than I actually am and the film is about women in their 40s and 80s and they kind of look at me like what the hell are you doing making a film about people that age and there was a little bit of me was kind of proud I thought yeah no I did because I I it's like what you were saying about you know women in film and tv there, there's been an absence there and a loss or whatever but it occurred to me when I wanted to make a film that to make a film about people my own age would have been selfish. And I think that's something that landed well in Galway. And I kind of forgot that I wanted that to happen as well. You know, these women are, they're 40, they're 80, and they're talking about being in love. And it's something that, you know, it was such a goal. And I think that once you watch it with other people, you kind of get reminded of, of why you did it in the first place. Yeah, the first time I saw it screened at a festival, I, I didn't think I was nervous. And then as soon as the opening title came on, I sort of came into like a cold sweat. But the more as they went on, I started to enjoy them more and more. Um, and yeah, and I've been I've been to them with friends and things like that. So I've really enjoyed the good screenings like later on. But the first few were quite nerve wracking. 
Yeah, and with total strangers as well, because you know your yeah. friends are gonna go. And <laughs> festival types too, loads of oh, industry yeah, they people. Are. So it's, yeah, they're it's like polite even loud. more, yeah, even more nerve wracking. Thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. When is the short screening? August Sunday, August fourth at yeah. half six. Sunday, August 4th at half six. Yeah. Okay, so everyone can watch these amazing shorts then and a few others as well, as well as in the Lighthouse Cinema. There's, it, th- like, there is a fantastic lineup this year, so make sure you catch it. Thank you. Thanks Thank so you. much. Thanks, that was excellent. <laughs> just had a fantastic conversation with the filmmakers and now I'm here with Roisin Garrity. So yeah, so you program the festival. I do. This is your last year it programming is. it for gays. It's my so fifth, sentimental. Fifth, fifth and final program oh. for gays this year. But it's been absolutely amazing, but it's it's time for someone else to take to the come mantle. along and take the mantle. But um it's been, I keep saying this, but it's been like it's been such a fantastic privilege really to be able to program the festival I've learned so much I've met so many incredible people I've got to go to so many interesting exciting places and learn so much about the world <laughs> it's uh it's been fantastic so I'm like I'm delighted I've had the time with the festival and I'm excited to you know pass over the mantle to someone else who you know I'm sure will be able to take it to, in a new direction excellent and tell me where do you find these nuggets of films where do you where do they come from uh, so it's a few different places. I usually start pro. We usually start programming the festival in January, and we open submissions, you know, well in advance of the festival, and we program quite a bit. Particularly, I'd say ninety percent, eighty, maybe eighty or ninety percent of our shorts are programmed through open submission, and. Um, and then a number of our features are programmed through open submission as well. But every year we attend uh, the Berlin Film Festival because they have a specific award for LGBT film called the Teddy Award. So they have a specific program uh, of queer film in the festival. Brilliant. And that's fantastic because that's your guidebook for for the entire festival. And it's, it's, it's a lot of the films at the Berlin Alley that are featured in the panorama and the forum sections. So we generally program a lot of film from there. And then we also attend BFI Flair in London, which is their LGBT festival. And it, it's been fantastic in the past number of years because I th- I feel I started this festival maybe quite green. and But you build your networks steadily because you're meeting a lot of the same people, especially in the LGBT film festival circuit, because, you know, you're all you're all programming from the same kind of group batch of, of, of films. It's not quite such a wide amount of films as if you're programming a mainstream festival Uh, so in the last number of years I've made friends with a lot of other programmers and that's just been invaluable because we all speak to each other and we all make you know recommendations to each other of of new film that's coming out and so it's kind of but do you try and scoop each other as well is it like oh I've got a secret one I don't want them to know because they're in the same time (laughs) absolutely not actually one of my highlights of gays I have to say is that Three years ago, I think, we we included A Date for Mad Mary as our secret screening at the festival. It won the Audience Award 
and then it it ended up I don't think it's it's one of those cases and it happens every year there's always a few films in the programme where I think they were probably not envisioned as LGBT films by the filmmakers but because of maybe themes or characters in the films they're scooped up by the LGBT circuit and that happened with A Date for Mad Mary I'm not saying it's because of gays but um it was so exciting to screen that festival, which is a main street. It's such an incredible, wonderful uh, film. But have it, it, it did the, it did a, you know, the mainstream festival circuit, and then it, it screened so many LGBT festivals. And when I meet uh, programmers and filmmakers, particularly in the US now, I've on a number of occasions I've had people turn around to me and go, uh, you know, people who attend LGBT festivals and go, I saw the most amazing Irish film called A Date for Mad Mary a couple of years ago, and. That's, you know, I love that. And I, you know, that those are the kind of gems, you know, I've had that happen to me with filmic, uh, with programmers in the US will suggest something to me that I won't have heard of. So it's kind of, you know, cultural exchanges. Okay, excellent. Get a lot of films that way as well. So I think we, I asked you this question about two years ago. You were in chatting with us again about gays. And I think I asked you, um, do you notice any changing themes in the films that you're watching? Um, now I'm just going to ask that again because I you, this is kind of your fifth year and things are changing around the mm-hmm. world a lot and I'm just wondering is that reflective in the films um, yeah it is I suppose it probably is noticeable in the themes but I think what's maybe more noticeable is kind of the there's it feels like there's a little bit of a shift in in the in like the landscape and maybe the face of LGBT film festivals because LGBT film is becoming mainstream and that's amazing. So I think that there's been a lot of talk about the place of LGBT festivals because a lot of films will kind of transcend that the LGBT film festival circuit because they may thematically be LGBT films but they lend themselves to a wide release. So they're films that are more likely to go to, you know, larger, maybe um, A-list festivals and that kind of thing. So, but I still think that LGBT festivals are very important. I think important. you guys are an A-list festival. Oh, thank you so <laughs> much. Um, but that's what's been noticeable to me in the past. Obviously, you, there are always changes and shifts in the themes and the trends of of what's happening in film. Yeah. On the L- in queer film, but you know, there's always going to be, you know, there's always um, you always notice different things even when you're programming mainstream cinema. But that's what's been more interesting for me is seeing this shift and noticing the way uh, LGBT festivals are sort of moving with this changing landscape. But for me, I still think that they're incredibly important as a way to promote and you know, to highlight the work of LGBT filmmakers. And I think a lot of festivals may end up reverting back to their activist roots because I think a lot of LGBT festivals are rooted in activism and rooted as kind of radical acts in some ways, particularly with gays. Gays was, you know, started in 1992, the year before homosexuality was even decriminalised. Yeah, I have that in my notes. It's like, God. (laughs) So that in itself was fairly radical. Um, So it's just interesting. And, And actually having heard the conversation with the Irish filmmakers there, I thought it was so interesting what Katie McNeese said about how, you know, talking about empathy and I think maybe LGBT festivals, you know, we all, all of the LGBT film festivals want to, 
well, the film, the, the programmers that I've met, you know, they want their their films to be seen by primarily, you know, LGBT audiences because it's they are community festivals. But, you know, we want them to be mainstream and we want, you know, more general audiences to see these films because they may be, you know, representing LGBT people, but they're universal stories. And they're the kind of stories that will help like invoke empathy among people and I wrote a note down actually after hearing what Katie said but as she said it's like helping audiences to understand others in this case LGBT people and also helping LGBT people to understand themselves in the way Katie spoke about with In Orbit you know the character coming to understand who they are so that's why I I don't know if that makes any much sense but um, that's why I think LGBT festivals are important so tell me about your festival highlights what do you have in store for us? Uh, well, the Irish Shorts Programme genuinely is always the highlight of the festival. And there's three fabulous ones that I saw. Yeah, they're, you know, the Irish Shorts are amazing and it's many different types of films, documentaries, you know, narrative films. And we have a, we have the programme this year is basically half Northern Irish and half uh you know, films from the Republic of Ireland. And I don't think that was really a conscious decision. It just kind of happened that way, but it is really important to us. You know, also, there's also a lot of money in Northern Irish film. Yeah, yeah. there is. They have a lot of funding and good. Yeah. I think they should have a lot of funding. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. And um, so, yeah, the Irish Shorts programme is always a highlight because a lot of the filmmakers attend and um, there's always an incredible crop of film. Uh, other highlights for me this year are the opening night film Deep in Vogue which is a documentary about the the voguing and drag ball scene in oh, Manchester but I just watched Paris is Burning yes <laughs> so yeah it really yeah takes it takes a nod from Paris is Burning yeah. and it's you know rooted in like the grassroots you know grassroots you know but you know Manchester scene Northern oh. England it's very intersectional it's very diverse it's really inclusive it's wonderful documentary and um, some of the dancers featured in the film will be performing oh, wow. um, after the screening and the director will be there as well. Uh, other highlights for me are Making Montgomery Clift, which is uh, a documentary about Montgomery Clift, which kind of, which was made by his nephew and it reframes his life essentially because Montgomery Clift was always seen as this very, you know, I, I don't want to say like a miserable character. They, they, you know, they described him as the slowest suicide in Hollywood history and this is his nephew's um attempt to go back and, and reframe his uncle's life and it's just a wonderful it's a wonderful it's a wonderful documentary film um, other highlights there are so many I'm really excited about the the rep program um, and the retrospective screenings in the festival this year um, we have two films in a series called uh, two programs called Remembering Queer Trailblazers and one of those is around Barbara Hammer um, the incredible um, lesbian uh, video artist and experimental filmmaker who sadly passed away this year and she attended Gaze 10 years ago so we put together a programme of her film from her like I, I was able to view her entire back catalogue to curate this programme and it was incredible and we are doing a programme around Marilyn Riggs who was probably one of the less known uh, filmmakers from the new queer cinema movement who was an Afri a gay African-American filmmaker who passed away um, from an AIDS-related illness in the early 90s so his work is you know it's quite well known in certain 
you know, facets in, in, you know, LGBT cinema, but he, I don't feel like he was heralded in the way he should have been. So we're, we have a 30th anniversary screening of his film, Tongues Untied, and we are screening one of his short films, Affirmations. Um, so very excited about that. We are screening uh, the director, the narrative directorial debut from Andy Timoner, who is a well-known documentarian who made films like Dig and she made a documentary about Russell Brand and Amanda Palmer and her narrative debut debut is called Maplethorpe and it's about the photographer Robert Maplethorpe so that's screening on the Saturday night of the festival. I could probably go on for for hours and hours about all the different films in the programme and different um, shorts programmes but those are some of my highlights this year. Excellent. Well thank you so much. I just wanted to get those in there. So it's the date of the festival. It's the bank holiday weekend the first one in August Yes. Um, so from the Friday to the... So it starts on Thursday the Thursday. 1st of August. That's uh, the 1st of August. That's our opening night right through to the bank holiday Monday the 5th of August. And uh, you can get all of your tickets through the Gays Festival website which is www.gaze G-A-Z-E So not G-A-Z-E dot I-E. And what's your opening film and closing film? So the opening film is Deep in Vogue and the closing film is J.T. Leroy. Yes. Okay, well, everybody go get your tickets there. If you couldn't, we couldn't have done more to get you excited because we'll be there anyway. <laughs> Thank you so much for Thank talking you. to us. We are heading into a time of rebellion. Punk, anarchy, queer, filthy, sexy, kind of taboo. It literally is Paris Fashion Week on crack. They needed an escape. They needed somewhere to go where they were accepted, where they could be completely free. The ball started in Harlem. This goes on all around the world, but we brought it here. Every single one of us can be more than people see on the outside. What you do for a living, doesn't matter who you are, it's all forgotten in that one night, and you are just there to walk and to own it. The celebration of the textures of what different types of beautiful freaks are out there in the world. And the ability to be strong in the face of adversity comes from Vogue and the, that moment to be unashamed. The representation is a, is a great one. It just shows that we're not all just angry and black. Anyone that feels like they're not safe or they can't be themselves needs somewhere. They need that safe place. They need somewhere they can belong. The Vogue ball is just where gay, straight, male, female, black, why old young come together and then just go, do you know what? Fuck it. <laughs> Let's celebrate and dance.